God, I hope I don't burn down the studio. Me too. Hello, and welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You. I'm Annie Reese, and I am joined today with a guest co-host, Julie Duggett. Duggo. I'll take that. <laughs> Julie Duggo. That's what I call her. <laughs> My friends. Sometimes known as Julie Douglas. Yes. Sometimes known as Julie Mom Douglas. <laughs> yes, and that is important to our topic today, which you pitched to me. Yeah, I had read this article by Claudia Day in Paris Match, and the name of the article is Mothers as Makers of Death. It's a great she's, title. Yeah, she's supposed to be doing a death metal voice. Um, mm-hmm. And it was really intriguing because, you know, I think there's been a lot of discussion about the perception of mothers, but it put it into a new light, or rather she articulated it in a way that I hadn't really heard before. And she talked about the complexity of motherhood. And and it may seem to, to people who are not mothers out there or who are, you know, non-binary, who don't subscribe to uh, this sort of femininity or associated femininity, that it might not have something to do with them. But in fact, this lens on motherhood has some really far-reaching implications for society uh, as a whole. And that's why I thought it was uh, a good thing to pitch to you. Yeah, and I i mean, when I heard the title, I was immediately in. But then when you explained explained kind of what that meant and the conversation that you, you wanted to have, I, of course, immediately thought of horror movies, which we're going to talk about a little bit. But it has been on the public's mind, I think, wrestling with this idea of the perceptions around motherhood and just the things that ripple out from that. And I am not a mother, so I'm very glad to have you here. Otherwise, it would be a very short episode, I think. Um, but I I do, because I'm someone that lives in this society, I do have a lot of, I, I have internalized a lot of these perceptions. And I think that motherhood is one of the most monolithic, romanticized, sanitized things in existence, maybe. Uh, just... And that we 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 don't even think about it. That's the thing. We just sort of accept that story that we've been told. The example I kept running into was June Cleaver. Um, old June. Old June from is Leave It to Beaver, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, she. If, for those that don't know, I mean, I've never seen Leave It to Beaver, but I know her. I know she is. She's got the dinner ready for you. She's perfect. Oh, Charles, I have your dinner ready and your slippers. Is that <laughs> Oh Beaver, now behave. I don't even I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just put that that voice in there? I cuz I wouldn't know. I've never seen it, so you could lie to me right now. I feel like I've seen clips, but I, I don't really honestly know the the characters names, but I do believe the gist of it is this idea of of this um sort of prototypical female mother who is one-dimensional. Yeah, and thinking about it now with my my adult brain, it's very um, kind of wish fulfillment, I think, for what um, a man would want, perhaps. Slippers. Slippers and food ready when he gets home. That's right. Yes, but we erase when we, we create those characters, uh, and when we say that 
motherhood is this one monolithic thing. We erase so many, all of the shades of it and the nuances of it and the complexities of it. Yeah, totally. And it's interesting because I feel like when uh, my first daughter was born nine years ago that I had a pretty full sense of what I thought I was getting into. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember just how completely gutted I felt after she was born because I had that whole flood of love, which is intense, but along with that I had this sense of dread because I suddenly understood, experienced rather, that I had made something that time would destroy. Mm-hmm. And it was, I just felt thunderstruck, you know, and shocked. And, you know, saying that, you're like, of course, duh, right? But I think that is, again, the experience as opposed to the knowing of yeah. the thing. And, and right then I or understood that what I was getting into in motherhood was um, far more complex than any of the what to expect when you're expecting books <laughs> uh, had ever put forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think we ever hear about that aspect of it because it is the miracle of life. You don't hear, well, what happens after that <laughs> miracle of life? We just... Uh, really paint it in these these bright colors. Um, yeah, and you say miracle of life, and it makes me think of the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. You know, because I had never really given the Virgin Mary a lot of thought, I have to tell you, until this episode. And then when I began to look into it, I was like, oh, this is this idea that here is, here's again this sort of prototypical mother figure who is one-dimensional in her portrayal, and yet she was the vessel for, yeah. you know, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And and her, her part in the whole thing had just been conflated to, again, vessel. She wasn't the agent who actually was responsible for, you know, becoming um, pregnant. Right. And, you know, there, there wasn't any sort of indication of like, oh, this is sort of a complex thing you're entering into, Mary. Um <laughs> A little it's, bit. It's Jesus, after all. <laughs> yeah. In no way is it ever um, posited that Mary had, again, any agency or right. any power or that she actually ultimately led to Jesus' demise just by virtue of bringing Jesus into the world, right? hmm But I do think that these sort of stories are important because I think that they inform us subconsciously about what we think a mother should be or is. Mm-hmm. And I remember this sense of this sort of one-dimensionality happening to me when my daughter Sadie was born. And the moment after she was born, I was referred to in the hospital as mom. It was mm-hmm. sort of this first feeling of like, oh, you've lost your identity and now you are a mother. And I can't think of any other instance in a hospital where a person is addressed as patient or right. in such a, like a categorical way. Yeah. And that was that was my first inkling that even though I felt the complexity of motherhood and just being a human, that it was being marginalized in, in such a distinct way. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought that up because as someone who's not a mother, I've never thought too much about it. But we have spoken a lot on this show about the importance of names and identity for a lot of people. And I am someone who 
new, like, I guess I never considered changing my name, never. So it's it's something I haven't given a lot of thought to because I've never had to. I've never considered it. But just losing that and being like, oh, now you're now your mom. I can oh, see, right, right, right. You mean like if you were to take another person's name and then on top of that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like further marginalized. I mean, <laughs> not that you're marginalized if you take someone else's name, but you know what I mean? Like your identity yeah. is, as you say, the importance of naming and your identity is tied to that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, as we are about to move into our our horror movie section, um, that reminds me of one of my favorite horror movies, The Ring, where it's so strange in the movie that it's a relationship between the mother and her son, Aiden, and Aiden only calls his mother Rachel by her name, by her first name. And they never say why. It is a plot point in the second one. So that's how she realizes he's possessed when he's like, Mom. But I, it's strange, and they never address it. And I, I remember thinking, huh, I, <laughs> I can't imagine calling my mom by her name, Susan, but that's her name. <laughs> it's not Mom. <laughs> you know, when you need to get her attention sometimes, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, to kind of set you up for that, I wanted to uh, read this bit from the article by Claudia Day when she talks about this complexity of motherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, Birth is not merely that which divides women from themselves so that a woman's understanding of what it is to exist is profoundly changed. Noted. (laughs) She says, another person has existed in her, and after their birth, they live within the jurisdiction of her consciousness. When she is with them, she is not herself. When she is without them, she is not herself. And I would add again that this kind of divided consciousness isn't relegated to biological children. It's really an extension of our mind's eye to any being that we care for mm-hmm. and we wish to survive. Right. Um, and I was thinking of of things like Mother Earth, Mother Nature, Mothership, these things that sustain us, that we depend on, but can be our death as well, can be very terrifying. If you're at the mercy of Mother Nature, that's a scary, <laughs> which we are. It's a frightening situation to be in. Um, and it's one of those things that we, I think we only look at the one side of it. But putting it in terms of like Mother Nature and Mother Mother Earth was actually really helpful for me. Was it t- because of this sense of randomness and force or power? A power, power. To be both the creator and the destroyer, I think. Because if you're thinking of of Mother Earth, then it's something that you depend on, that you need, that sustains you. But it is kind of a dangerous situation to be in. Which makes it such fertile territory for the horror movie genre. It does. And right now, horror movies are in love with telling stories about mothers and around motherhood. It's been around for a long time, the the genre of maternal horror. It's its own genre. But right now, just just off the top of my head, um, Hereditary is very focused on motherhood. The Babadook, Mother, of course, which I don't know if I'd call it a horror movie, but it's weird and creepy. Stranger Things um, on Netflix... And a quiet place came up when I was reading about this a little bit, because we're we're in the middle of reimagining that genre because for a while it was very much not 
complex and mm-hmm. nuanced. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that's interesting about the genre of maternal horror, and in general horror, it's written by men. So if we look at this genre, for a long time, it did pretty inaccurately represent this mother-child dynamic. And one of the interesting things about it, this genre, is that it's the mother we're afraid of, usually. A mother willing to do anything for her child. Mm -hmm. Uh, This category includes things like Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, Friday the 13th, um, and Scream 2 even, which listeners know I I apparently could talk about Scream 2 all of the time. (laughs) I feel like I have a Scream 2 side podcast. I feel like you could teach a course on it. I could. Yeah. I really think I could give a lecture. Um, I would take it. Oh, it would be I would really take that course. It would be really interesting. But all of those are sort of part of this tradition of presenting seriously flawed mothers in horror movies. Um and and it it, it kind of branches off into this other subset of mothers where th- the flaw, there's some flaw that the mother has, and it sets off the whole chain of terrifying events. Like in Scream, where um as a viewer, you're supposed to be really wary of Sydney, the main character, of her mother and her mother's infidelity. And that was the reasoning the serial killer gave for his whole murder spree. Which, I, I got that's flimsy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Billy Loomis. <sighs> um, <laughs> and then his mom comes back in the second one. Anyway, I need to stop talking about Scream. Um, (laughs) There's Marge's alcoholism from Nightmare on Elm Street, Wendy's passive nervousness, and I would argue foolishness in the portrayal in The Shining. Um, Just these bad mothers that set off, again, blaming women, set off this whatever horror movie monster, his chain of events, because it usually is a, a he. And so don't you kind of feel like it's a moral code written in these movies by men mm-hmm. about, you know, here here are the consequences. If you're going to be a bad mother, you're you're going to be responsible for some, you know, terrible things. Yeah. It's a writer saying, Mom, I could have become a serial killer. <laughs> That's, it's some weird message to their own moms. I don't know. That's a That's a new theory I have off the top of my head. Another aspect that is particularly horrifying in horror movies is single motherhood. The implication that a woman might not need a man is downright scary to some folks. And in our patriarchal society, single mothers are viewed as a threat to masculine authority. And we see it in horror movies all of the time. And in other other media too, but the clingy mama's boy who's usually effeminate and unable to function in the world without his mother. There's an undercurrent of Oedipus Rex usually there too. And this is seen as a failure on the mother's part. It is usually a son in this equation too, because without a father to provide a role model, society has an anxiety that the boy will not be as masculine and that he won't reject and separate himself from his mother's femininity. And this is a danger to the patriarchal structure of our society. Yeah, and but this is not just like a, you know, sort of idea or like a paper that was written on this, right? Like we we hear and see this in political rhetoric, right? Like there's the, the breakdown of the family unit. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, 
And it, and we were kind of discussing too how if it's a single father, it it's seen as much more a positive. Like, look what he's doing. Applause, applause. Scream again. <laughs> it's there. It's all there. <laughs> um, it's so true. We were talking about uh, in social media, there was a guy who, um, MacGyver style, as one does as a parent, changed a diaper in a public restroom without a changing pad. And this can be a very, like, uh, tenuous thing. You can mm-hmm. end up with lots of excrement on you. So um, he was celebrated. And I was like, hey, you got to be kidding me, man. I just get the stink eye whenever I do that from people <laughs> because they're like, you took so long mm-hmm. in the restroom with, with that damn kid of yours, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Because it's expected of women and the mother typically. And like a, oh, surprise, look at this, of the man. Exactly. Yeah. Um Horror movies, if we go back to them, they they have traditionally been divided up into two categories. So you have the abusive mother who creates the monster or killer or what have you via her bad parenting and all of these, like, in quotes, heavy quotes, uh, like Friday the 13th, Psycho, Carrie. Um, and then you have the the other path that these horror movies typically go down is um, the victim who is usually helpless to save herself and maybe her child, like The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, The Shining. So many examples I could go on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But as you had said, Mm -hmm. this is becoming a more complex portrayal. It is. In more current horror, mothers are, they have more nuance. And The Babadook is a great example. It's, It's on Netflix, should you want to watch after this. Uh, Amelia, the main character, is neither the screaming victim or the abuser. She loves her son, and she resents him. She shows fury at the sacrifice motherhood has demanded of her, and this is kind of a radical thing to admit that as a mother, that you don't love motherhood. You always hear, like, it's so great. It's one of the most beautiful experiences. You're going to love it. And in this movie... Her, it, it, to me, seeing that was new and completely radical. And just, it made sense, though. Like, of course, mm-hmm. her child was annoying. And I'm saying, like, that is objective. He is annoying. <laughs> and he's, like, screaming at her, pulling her hair, and shooting her with this crossbow. And... You can understand. She she is both. She still loves him, and it's clear that she loves him. But he wears her down as well. But that's kind of going back uh, to that bifurcated consciousness, right? right this yeah. idea that you can't be alone in yourself ever. Mm-hmm. Even when you're not with your child, they're within the realm of your consciousness. And even when you're with your child, you, you, you're you still, like, not yourself. And, and suddenly, like, your hair is being pulled and <laughs> yeah. your child's trying to maim you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's—she is also a single mother. And there's a whole complication of the story that uh, her husband died the day her son was born. But—so you also get to see that play out. And you get to see the other mothers— kind of look down on her. Literally in one scene, it's shot in such a way that the camera, all of the other mothers are standing and the camera is from their POV and it's looking down at Amelia and judging her her parenting skills and blaming her for her son's bad behavior. She lives in a very isolated home 
And you, you just get, get this sense that her whole world is dominated by her son. And the Babadook, the, the monster in this movie, very much represents like her her depression and it's it's I don't want to spoil the ending but um I would highly recommend watching it if anyone's interested in horror movies about motherhood this is this is a good one well it strikes a nerve right because it's it's saying like uh, motherhood can be isolating yeah it's supporting what we already know from a lot of studies about what happens when in a heteronorm couple, they become parents, a, a man and a woman, that a lot of the, the onus, the responsibility is on the woman. Mm-hmm. And how society is supporting that. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And another example that I'm in love with, Hereditary. <laughs> I will disclaimer. Hereditary is very good. It is emotionally brutal. It's tough. People have walked out of the theater. This movie came out like Last year. Okay, so tell me, tell me, what about motherhood? <laughs> uh, it was causing have, people to walk out. Yeah, like why? Why do I sort of like tremble on the inside when you start to talk about, talk about this, Harry? Um, it it messes with both of those tropes of of the victim and the abuser because the main character Annie, she is both, and she she's seen as the the villain or she sees herself as the villain for failing her family and it's a the film is a really uncomfortable look at the damage mothers can inflict on their children with at the same time without being judgmental for it um and it, she's just in part because of the uh, great performance by Tony Collette in the main role you understand her like, even if sometimes there's one scene where the look on her face of resentment and anger towards her own son is stunning. And I think about that all the time, just the hatred. But you, again, you can, she's a human being. She's a well-thought-out character, and you can see where these feelings are coming from because it's a, it's a study on grief and destructive, how, how destructive grief can be. Um, and I thought it was very effective. And there's one point in the movie where she's at a um, grief like counseling group, almost like AA, but for grief. And she she starts talking about why she's there, and it sort of unravels into something else. And at the end, she says, I realize I am to blame, or not that I am to blame, but I am blamed. And I remember leaving, and that line stuck with me, for a while because I wasn't quite sure what it meant. Um, what do you think it means? I think it means that she... Well, there there's two levels of what it means because there is like a demonic thing happening. <laughs> Spoiler alert. But on the level of grief and uh, family, which I think it's more about, um, I think it means she feels that she has failed and that she's set up to fail, that she cannot succeed in all of these ways. And um, she later in the movie, she's talking about how she made this mistake, and it was a pretty serious mistake with her children and how they'll never forgive her for it. Like she could do anything and they'll never forgive her. And she has frustration and anger about that because to her, she's like, I 
I, it was an accident. I didn't mean it, but they're never going to forgive me for it. So I, I think it's a good example of how we set mothers up to fail and how she felt that. Yeah, I, I think that's the sense of the stakes, right? Like mm-hmm. They're that high when yeah. when you're a mother. Um, and in some ways, just you're, when you're a caregiver at mm-hmm. all yeah. in society, um, this idea that you're being judged harshly mm-hmm. and that you won't be able to ever really rise to these impossible standards because we're human. And like so that's a lot of this discussion, this idea that we're, compartmentalizing our humanness mm-hmm. into this sort of binary like A or B, um, you know, like Madonna whore or, right. you know, good mom, bad mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like, just the idea that you have to be perfect all of the time and that your relationship with your children is perfect all of the time. It's not realistic. And I can, I we see it all the time and I, I can totally understand that feeling of that you're not succeeding with these goals that you think that society has told you are, are the goals. And apparently, <laughs> horror, horror has it's, it's tapped into that. Well, it's a perfect trope for horror movies, right? <laughs> it like, really it, it's it kind of, I think that's why it strikes a nerve to even talk about it in this way because mm-hmm. it feels taboo to even say, like, oh, a mother could feel negative about her children or, mm-hmm. um, or resentful. Mm-hmm. And, and to be clear, like, this is not a conversation of like, oh, motherhood is hard. Oh, yeah. Grr. You know, it's, yeah. it's, that's not it. It's, it's saying, like, let's really look at, um, at this issue and then how it's portrayed in society and it, with nuance. Yeah. And I I do want to bring up one example of, of like, a really cool, this is how it's changing, is if you look at the original Carrie versus the new Carrie by the Stephen King movie. Stephen King movie book, I don't know. But, yes, uh, Carrie shows, in the first one, the original one, the mother is very one-dimensional, very abusive, seen as the villain, when she's a single mom too, right? Yeah. yeah. And when Carrie kills her at the end, spoilers, I guess. Um, Maybe not at this point. Yeah, I feel like the the statue of limitations is passed. <laughs> um, that is, she is vanquishing the monster. The monster is not Carrie. The monster is the mother in that movie. But in the new one, um, you have, I would argue much more sympathy for the mother because she does show that love. She's abusive, but there she has, like, another layer to her. And it's when Carrie kills her in the new one that it's much more out of sadness. And you, you have—you can at least relate to this is a human being and not, like, a straight-up one-dimensional— Monster. Mm-hmm. Well, she hasn't been objectified to the point where the audience is going, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which I think is a more powerful film. Um, and then I did want to bring up, because I watched this a couple of nights ago, Lyle, which is sort of a re remake. It's not a remake. It's like Rosemary's Baby reimagined mm-hmm. uh, with a lesbian couple. And I... I saw it described in a lot of places as a horror movie version of um, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. 
<laughs> Which right there, I mean, you have me. Yeah, yeah. That's why I was like, what movie is this? Um, one of the the couple, she's pregnant. And they already have a daughter named Lyle. Um, and the baby dies in an accident. And the the pregnant one starts to suspect that it wasn't an accident. And, you know, it's a horror movie. So, hmm. Uh, and the movie re- really plays on this fear women have around family and ambition and that we have as a society around ambitious women um, who who would dare choose career over family. And the movie is all the more shocking because as opposed to Rosemary's Baby, it's a woman making a deal with the devil for success, the family, instead of Guy and Rosemary's Baby. Um, I think that's why it caused a lot of conversation. Like, oh, why is this so much more different seeing a woman in this role. Uh, yeah, and I think that, w- we'll get to this, is I definitely think that ties to this idea, the perceptions uh, or the costs of becoming a parent mm-hmm. um, in, in this society. So let me just say it again, um, it, that has real implications, right, and how that works out in the real world when you become a parent. Mm-hmm. And how you are sort of, you know, you've heard the mommy tax before. Yeah. Um, and how in the workplace you're seen differently. Um, but before we get to that. Yes. Let's talk about lost children of men. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about lost. We're going we're gonna to go the route lost went, which is off the rails. No, th- these are other um, <laughs> pop culture examples of seeing, like, protecting the, the pregnant woman at all costs. Lost. The whole first season was kind of set up on that. And um, Children of Men, whole movie and book about that. And there are so many examples of what women, and especially women, need to be afraid of when it comes to parenting and uh, children. And the movie The Others is a great example of this to the extreme because Nicole Kidman's character is obsessively protective of her children. She never lets them leave the house. She keeps all the blinds closed. It's because they have allergy to light, but still. Um, And she ends up being the threat to her children Mm -hmm. and her overzealousness to protect them. Which is basically what people are telling us with the helicopter mom studies. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's not just your role as mother, but role as partner in the sort of heteronorm arrangement where, you know, you've got to be the, the help meet is that, that's how it's said, I believe, the the perfect sort of spouse mm-hmm. to make sure that the structure is in place where you are supporting the male. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this came up in a discussion around Breaking Bad. <laughs> of course. Of course. We, we talk about all kinds of things here. And um, the depiction and reaction to Skylar from Breaking Bad versus, I don't know her name, but the... the Please, Wendy. Wendy from yeah. Ozark. They're essentially similar plot lines, and they these two female characters were essentially in the same role. Right. So their husbands are are, are sort of dabbling in um, in criminal activities, mm-hmm. and one spouse, Skylar, yeah, is like, "Hey, maybe not cook meth. Think that's a terrible idea. You're putting our family in danger." Yep. And uh, she's seen as like, you know, sort of like uh, this fishmonger's wife on the dock screaming at him all the time. (laughs) Just let Walt be Walt. Right. Right. And Mm. then you have Wendy who is supporting Marty in his endeavors at laundering money. Mm -hmm. And and it's an entirely different reaction from audiences. And yet Skylar is the one who has the moral compass. Yeah. 
And I bet people are getting mad just hearing her name. People did not like her. And I remember watching that show, and I used to have this test where I would kind of, I would, I would maybe make a, a judgment about your character, um, where I would ask, like, when did Walt lose you? When, when were you turning from, oh, he is the, the hero of this story, to he is the villain of this story? And if you, if some people have said, like, season four, whoo. But I remember being shocked by how vitriolic the response was to Skylar. And, I mean, she's not... We're not saying she's great, but... She's flawed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they both were. And I would argue that (laughs) she was trying to protect her family, too. She was just a woman doing it, trying to do her own own way. Yeah, and I think that there there was so much empathy from the audience for Walt. I mean, it was his story, right? Mm -hmm. And, And she became the anti-hero or, you know, the, the person that they could place all the blame on for Walt not finally getting what Walt wanted. Right. Which is a lot of money and respect. Yeah. And money and respect in this society is huge, right? If you're mm-hmm. a man, can't you see that? You know? I think so. I think I've, I think I've seen some examples of that. <laughs> uh, yeah. And another aspect of this is, is people of color have traditionally been left out of this space in entertainment. And when they are included, the tropes are amplified, or they have their own specific tropes in many cases. Um, for a long time, the black mother especially has been portrayed as the the welfare mother or the like angry, violent, sassy mother. Tyler Perry's Medea, that's an extreme example, but um, that that dynamic, that trope we see play out a lot too. Yeah, and although I, I will say that um, Cookie Lion from Empire mm-hmm. is... A great example of an unapologetic, flawed woman who is both committed to her family but also very ambitious. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, you know, I don't know if, I'm, if neat is the word, <laughs> but that's kind of <laughs> cool to see. It's neato. <laughs> it's real neato. Mm-hmm. We're hip Your with slippers the lingo. are right over here, darling. <laughs> Did people wear a lot of slippers back then? Yeah, I feel like if in the 1950s, I always had like like the guy would get this is my idea. The guy would get home from my long day's work, mm-hmm. and he would sit in his club chair, smoke mm-hmm. a pipe, and then his slippers were waiting for him, so he could uh, take his lace-up shoes off and then put his big stinky feet into the comfortable slippers. I mean, that sounds nice. <laughs> and the turkey was on the table. Yes. Yes. So let me ask you this. Okay. Okay. You being the sensitive, gentle soul that you are, uh-huh. um, growing up with an appetite for horror movies, uh-huh. how did this affect you, like all of these narratives? I apparently, I very much took those in and internalized them. And I've shared on the show before when I was 14. I went to, I had a gynecologist appointment and he told me I was pregnant and I wasn't, but he very adamantly said, you are pregnant. And he called my dad to come pick me up. And I just remember the feeling of horror I had of like pure terror. And I kept thinking, oh, I wonder if this is how my mom felt 
when she found out she was pregnant. And I don't know if it's that, if that is what set this off, but when I was 17, I decided to do NaNoWriMo for the first time, which is coming up, uh, National Novel Writing Month. And that's where you write a book in one month. Uh, pretty self-explanatory. And I had no idea. I, I was just like, I got to start writing because I kind of decided maybe a weekend to do it. And the story that I wrote was about a a character. It's kind of like Handmaid's Tale meets Children of Men. Um, basically, you live in this world where it's very difficult to get pregnant. And if you do, then you don't, there's no guarantee you'll keep your child. Um because you have to go through the board of better parenting. Uh, <laughs> and the the main character, she gets pregnant against the law, because there's certain circumstances. Anyway, it's confusing. But she is the, the book is her on the run and, like, trying to protect her child and constantly feeling like she's failing. Like, she can't... She feels like she is more his sister, that she doesn't deserve this title of mom, and that he doesn't realize that she's not a good mom... Um, that he's she's not living up to it. And it isn't until the end when she has this revelation when she finally feels like she is a mother. And I've never been a mother. And I that story is the one that I wrote, not thinking about it, that that's what happened. And um, and you were 17 when you were with us. Yes. And do you still feel this this way, this sort of... Like sort of existential terror. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do, um, and I've gone back and kind of rewritten it and reshaped it, and I toyed with the idea of trying to get it published. And I'm still toying with that idea, but I wanted to share it with someone who's actually been a mother. So I went to my own mom and asked her to read it, and just I once she finished, I said, "Did that make sense? Was I touching? Was is that a real thing that you experienced?" And she said, "Yes." Um, so I wow yeah I don't know I guess it is a really powerful narrative that we absorb and it it is frightening it really is um I just love that you and your mom have that kind of relationship or had that relationship when you were that age mm-hmm. that you guys could talk about that yeah I, I think that my mom would have. Uh, would have just shut down if 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 she had read something like that that yeah. I had written. Yeah, and I, she's great. Yeah. Mom, I love you. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. And then I I wrote. It ended up. I uh, wrote three of them. So it's a trilogy, and um, in the second one, she it ends with um, her child getting abducted, and she wakes up. And she has this moment of fear, like, I don't know who I will be without without him if I can never find him again. I don't know who I am without him. Um, which is just, it's interesting that apparently that has sunk into my, my brain. Well, what I think is interesting about that, too, is that you are at an age where you probably shouldn't have been able to take that perspective for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but you tapped into, again, this idea of a split consciousness that immediately happens when when you are taking care of a life. Yeah. Yeah, and I, um, I to this day, I look back at that moment of, like, you know, the blank screen. What am I going to write? 
And that's what poured out, and it, it still surprises me. <laughs> I have no idea. I had never thought about it before, or at least not like consciously thought of this story. Um, and I, I was very active in raising my brother. And I mean, that's in no way the same, but I did have this constant concern about him like all the time where is he is he okay what's he doing are the kids being mean to him oh no just <laughs> and it was really it was really exhausting um so maybe that was part of it I think you I think you definitely picked up on it um but I think this is important like this, this sort of conversation is really important because again it's confronting the complexity of what it is to take on this role in society Mm-hmm. And uh, something that we are going to explore right after this ad break. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we are going to turn our discussion now to Ma Kali, or the, the dark mother, uh, the candle for whom (laughs) the goddess for whom the candle burns in our studio currently. That's right. We have a candle lit. Nothing has has, uh, burned down so far. Mm -hmm. But it is, it's it's, uh, an attempt to try to tap into Kalima, Mm -hmm. uh, who is this goddess of creation, preservation, and destruction. Yes, she is all three. She's known as the mother, kind of, essentially. And and while she is all of those things, she is most known as the destroyer. One of the, the best-known stories about her describes how she devoured the entrails of her dead consort, Shiva, and her yoni, which is a.k.a. vulva or womb. Or so yoni is a, a word for vulva, vulva or, or womb. womb. But okay. it usually has a spiritual aspect to it. Um, sexually devoured his penis. So we we definitely hear a lot, at least in the West, we hear a lot more about her role as the destroyer. Yeah, and we wanted to bring her into this conversation, not Mm -hmm. so that we could talk about devouring organs, um, (laughs) but to talk about, like, here here is uh, a narrative, a a goddess, um, who really brings all these disparate parts together of Mm -hmm. what it is to be a human and to exist on earth, which is to feel pain and suffering and love and joy, to also have the destructive force along with the creative force within you. And um, and I think the reason why she gets the destroyer rap so much is because she is ferociously depicted. I mean, we are talking about wearing a garland of skulls mm-hmm. and a skirt of dismembered hands. Yeah, that's pretty hardcore. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in, in one hand she brandishes a sword, mm-hmm. and what's in the other hand? A severed head, of course. <laughs> she probably <laughs> used the sword for. Probably. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then she's uh, her eyes are ablaze, her tongue is sort of lolling out of her mouth. Yeah. I mean, this is not a gentle depiction of of what we would typically call like a feminine figure. No, not at all. And that definitely played a role, I would say, and uh, you would say, um, into her becoming reduced down, watered down to just the destroyer and most 
Western thought. And the creation and preservation aspects of her are forgotten. She's painted as something evil and or demonic. The Encyclopedia Britannica did not even include her role in the creation. Uh Uh-huh. We've got our eye on you, Encyclopedia Britannica. (laughs) We're coming for you. She is full of love, though, and all types, and all of this love flows out from her to all women on Earth, her earthly army. In her role as the mother, she was also called the treasure house of compassion, the giver of life to the world, and the life of all lives. Men who worship Kali are instructed to bow to the feet of women and learn from them. Only male animals were to be sacrificed in her name due to an ancient belief that they had no role in the cycle of generation. Hmm. Yeah. Those that worshipped Kali worshipped both aspects of her, two sides of the same coin, life and death, giver and destructor. A worshipper might say, his goddess, his loving mother, and time who gives him birth and loves him in the flesh, she also destroys him in the flesh. His image of her is incomplete if he does not know her as his terror and devourer. That is so badass if you yeah. think about it, right? Like if you are worshiping or you, you're, you're in, invoking this goddess, mm-hmm. and to actually say those words and confront your mortality in that way, yeah. it kind of it puts everything into perspective. It Yes, it absolutely does. Side note. Side note. Uh, Kali is also regarded as a manifestation of the virgin mother and crone. And we see that that kind of three um, manifestations echoed in several other cultures too. The Greeks, the Romans, the Celts, the Egyptians. And um, I love this quote. The hungry earth which devours its own children and fattens on their corpses. So like a less Disney-fied circle of life. <laughs> the circle of life. I will devour your corpses. <laughs> I don't know why Disney didn't go that route. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Kali is sometimes called the terrible mother in India. She is depicted as the feminine, as the way creation and life and death and destruction are all intertwined. The womb and the tomb at once. I wish I could take credit for that, but I saw that in several places describing her. Um, and that that depiction was common in thousands of ancient religions. So right, and, and so that's what I think is interesting um, is that this is a, a very old concept, and people's ability to absorb this information and weave it into their cultural narrative without passing out mm-hmm. is pretty significant. And to me, um, Kalima stands in opposition of Virgin Mary in a way. And that here is, you know, here's sort of not just the opposite of the Virgin Mary, but rather a fuller depiction of what it is to be a creator slash destroyer. Right. And she also is a great example of delegation because her three functions are delegated out to Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, the gods of creation, preservation, and destruction, respectively. And Vishnu is written to have said about Kali, Maternal cause of all change, manifestation, and destruction, the whole universe rests upon her, rises out of her, and melts into her. From her crystallize the original elements and qualities which construct the apparent world. She is both mother and grave. The gods themselves are merely constructs out of her maternal substance, which is both consciousness and potential joy. And in the beginning, 
She in was the beginning. In, uh, in the beginning, <laughs> Kali was an ocean of blood, sort of like the primordial soup that all life sprang from. Ocean of blood. That's intense. Um, in the final of Kali's three stages is the nothingness that comes after death, after she has devoured time. Quote, the generative womb of all the beginning and end of beings. So, again, this is radical thinking for us right now in this modern age. Yeah. Because it is taking on time and space. Like, we're essentially saying that Kali was the Big Bang in yeah. a way, right? Like, she was not just the creator-destroyer of uh, beings, but that she actually spawned time itself. Yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. <laughs> um. And there, there are so many good quotes about her. As she devours all existence, as she chews all things existing with her fierce teeth, therefore a mass of blood is imagined to be the apparel of the queen of the gods at the final dissolution. That's great. That's on, that's on my resume. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> you should get it on business cards, on a pillow. <laughs> I would love it on a pillow, honestly. <laughs> that would be great like to include in all of, like those, you know, the quotes that are being circulated around right now, just quotes about Kali, like, you know. I, I dig it. Mm-hmm. Something about a yoni. <laughs> yeah, I think I think our listeners could could work on that for us. But it is interesting because we always paint motherhood as this nurturing thing, which it is. And we talk about fierce mama bears, sure, but the connotation is still someone protecting her child and this sort of nurturing aspect of it. And if we go back to horror movies for a second, the newer, more complex depictions we, we, were, we were talking about are closer to Kali, the life giver and death bringer capable of creation and destruction. And this is scary, right? Uh, if we all we see and hear as a society is in these black and white terms of mothers are stable, perfect, loving, or abusive monsters— if we show more of that gray, it's unsettling because we don't talk about it and we don't see it reflected in our media. Right, because again, going back to this sort of binary, right? Mm-hmm. Black and white, sun and moon, good and bad. Um, you know, the, it's ignoring this mosaic of yeah. the human experience. Mm-hmm. And we we should not ignore it. <laughs> no, we shouldn't. Instead, we should just dig a little deeper and there's nothing like digging deep than to go to old Papa Freud. <laughs> That's right. That's what I always say. I'm going to go to old Papa Freud old for this. Old Papa Freud. Yeah, the, the Madonna whore complex. Um, it, it plays into this, uh, yeah, that binary. And it, it, what we're talking about here is how men both fear and desire women, which can create a cognitive dissonance that results in misogyny, sexism, and sometimes violence. And Sigmund Freud came up with the, a theory of how men deal with this, and it involves separating out women um, the man admires and respects into the category of the Madonna and the women that the man is attracted to and therefore doesn't respect into the category of the whore. And these are mutually exclusive. Love is seen as clean and pure, and lust and sex are viewed as dirty and shameful. And, uh, you know, a lot of what Freud um, has done has been brought into question, but this is one of those things that sort of has stuck. Yeah. People have said, you know, Freud, we think that he might have been on to something here in the way that this binary works in society. Yeah, and it's been really interesting (laughs) 
We almost went on, well, I almost did, on a huge tangent about the celebrity baby body because they are trying to be both the Madonna uh, and the whore. Well, not really. They're not trying to be. But the, the both things that they're trying to combine together. And it, if you... A throwback to 1991 when Demi Moore collided these two ideas in her nude photo shoot for Vanity Fair while she was pregnant with her second child. And that was a huge deal. Some stories insisted on selling the magazine in a closed package. And we see it on our magazine covers all the time. Um, the the celebrity post-pregnancy body. How quickly can she get rid of that that baby? Oh, I don't know. I almost said baby bump. That's not it. <laughs> Some cases, you know, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just this pressure of that we're putting on women to to lose the baby weight as quickly as possible and become attractive to the male gaze again to get your body back. Like that's a frequent thing you'll a quote that you'll see when saying, oh, I want to get my body back. Which is strange when you think about it. It is strange because it it doesn't really honor, again, the complexity of the experience or anything that a person has gone through. And instead, it's like six weeks to you and a better post-mom baby. And it's not, it's not like that's going to happen. And then suddenly society is going to drop this binary perception they have of you because you're now a mother and think that you're hella sexy. <laughs> right. And... Uh, for the social media mention of the episode, social media comes up all the time. Um, just remind yourselves that um, celebrities are paid to look a certain way. It's their job, um, project a certain image, and it's a one-dimensional rendering of them that you're getting. And some celebrities, especially recently, have gotten real with their struggles with pregnancy, with losing weight, um, afterwards, if that's something that they wanted to do. I know Charlize Theron recently talked about it. Um, and I remember, I do remember when Tom Cruise called Brooke Shields out for taking medication for postpartum depression, which is another throwback. That was a while ago. Because he's an expert on postpartum oh, depression. I'm sure he is. So, I mean, the, the bottom line is... Um, it's just bad for everyone, this sort of idea that you can compartmentalize a person's identity into box A or B. And there's actually a study, it's published in the journal Sex Roles, um, it involved 108 hetero-Israeli men. And what it found is that those men who bought into this idea of Madonna whore, mm-hmm. meaning like, uh, you know, oh, if my, if my partner uh, becomes a mother, then she is no longer sexually desirable or, mm-hmm. you know, she can't engage in, you know, a, quote, dirty act, right? Mm-hmm. Um, those men felt less satisfied in the romantic relationships with their partners overall. So think about it. Like one of your most intimate relationships is affected by this overlay that is a complete construction mm-hmm. in society. We could delve so much more into the Madonna horror complex. We we were talking off mic about this 80-page study I found comparing um, Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton and the coverage of them in this lens. So we'll probably have to do a return episode um, on that and discuss that. I just wanted to note to the listeners that Annie read all 80 pages. 
<laughs> it was that's, interesting. Because that's our Annie. <laughs> I wanted to know more. <laughs> and speaking of more, we do have some more for you. But first, we're going to pause for one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Another thing we wanted to talk about in this whole conversation is the the change of perceptions after becoming parents when you look at male versus female, how that differs. And the results of one study looking at the differences in these perceptions um, of male versus female parents found that both men and women viewed women with children as less ambitious than those without, up to 30% less ambitious. And we've we've mentioned other studies on the show before that might be related, um, showing that bosses are less likely to give flex time to mothers, thinking that their their loyalties are divided, um, or all of the pregnancy discrimination that we've talked about on the show that we've seen in the news a lot lately. And men with children were were rated as having a higher social status, mm-hmm. seen as more generous, more faithful, more honest, more mature. All of these good things that the women were not seen that way in this study. Right, which, it's, again, that disparity of this this thing happens in your life mm-hmm. to two people, mm-hmm. and it's a vastly different outcome in terms of perception. And, again, it goes back to identity because the role of motherhood is seen by society as central to a woman's identity. And this is from a paper called Across the Transition to Parenthood, um, says parenthood is more salient for women's self-conceptions than for men's and men perceive fathering as something they do yeah whereas women experience mothering as something they are right and i will never forget my husband once put a post up on instagram uh, where he said he was babysitting our children, and it was a picture of him and our children. Mm-hmm. oh my goodness he got it right <laughs> <laughs> he got it from me he got it from a lot of people um but and that's someone who has a awareness mm-hmm. a, a, about these sorts of things. Yeah, it's pretty ingrained, right? He was he was not doing and being. And another added layer that we've talked about a lot on on this show before, especially in our episode around emotional labor, is um, undervaluing women's work. So traditionally, jobs that are traditionally women's work, like child rearing or teaching or nursing or cleaning or anything nurturing, semi mother esque, is undervalued in our economy. And this is doubly so for women of color. And we have seen, and I've seen this rolled into the conversation around uh, women's anger, but um, women starting to, like the teacher strikes is Mm -hmm. a great example of women fed up and wanting to be compensated, rightfully so, for the work that they're doing that is undervalued. A study out of the Institute for Women's Policy Research in Oxfam, America, looked into this whole thing, and they started by using four criteria to identify women's work. Um, Occupation primarily composed of women, medium wage, less than $15 an hour, 100,000 or more women doing, performing this job, and then the number of jobs projected to grow over the next 20 years. And they were were specifically looking at um, lower paid women's work. And 22 jobs were identified, and 81% of the workers for these jobs on average were women. Almost half live in poverty. 81%? I'm sorry. 81%. Okay. 81%, almost half live in poverty, and the median age is 36. 
12% are single mothers. About 45% of that total percentage are women of color. This is impacting a lot of women. Right. So you, you think, oh, this, this, uh, this thing about motherhood, it's, you know, if you're outside of it, that it doesn't extend to you in some way. It, it does, because this is the very fabric of society that we're talking about, these mm-hmm. systems in place, like education or nursing. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that this ability to care give mm-hmm. is really not just important to society right now, but sort of like the future of humanity. Yeah, because I've heard a lot of, uh, I think I've heard a whole series about what jobs are safest in the future. Well, it turns out it's a job that a robot can't do, right? And one thing that robots aren't great at is empathy and caregiving. So there's been some research showing that in the near future, empathy and emotional intelligence uh, are going to be the most desired traits among human job applicants, which is blowing my mind just to put it in terms like that human versus robot job applicants. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to imagine like uh, sort of like the bro version of this because, you know, obviously in the future this will extend uh, into fields that men are also being asked to be empathetic or mm-hmm. to tap into this sort of caregiving role. And so that either is liberating or then we redefine these mm-hmm. traits as being masculine. Oh, yeah. I mean... I uh, there's so many examples of jobs that were once women's jobs that once they started making money, like computer science is a good example. That was that used to be primarily dominated by women, but then men realized, whoa, whoa, they're making some money. This is a needed job, and they came in, took the jobs, and redefined it as a masculine occupation. So I can very much see in the future where. Um, the same is true of teachers. Teachers used to be a masculine profession, but then it wasn't getting paid enough. It was seen as like nurturing, and then it became feminine. I can see it going back. If if there's money to be made and the power is there, I can see it changing. Well, and I can't help but the, you know, like the utopian version of myself saying, oh, and this is when everybody will be enlightened and liberated, and uh, we can finally take the sun and the moon and combine them. Um <laughs> But perhaps not. Um, Sort of the last thing that we're going to talk about here in terms of a casualty of gender identity is politics. Yes, politics. We saved the worst for last. We did. (laughs) Isn't that everyone's favorite thing? You don't leave on a high note. I'm pretty sure you leave on a low note. Yeah, (laughs) not not for this one. Um, So let me just lay this out. Uh, I think most people recognize that we in the United States are in a sort of systemic, structural systemic situation here in terms of misogyny or um, ability for a woman to move forward or have the same resources as a male counterpart, right? We sort of all agree that short shrift is given to women. Mm -hmm. So when we think about this sort of short shrift and the reasons why perception, right, this uh, masculine feminine, can we extend that to the Democratic Party? I think maybe we can. <laughs> yep, and Jess Zimmerman, who writes for Slate.com, thinks so as well. And in the article, Why Can't Democrats Get Angry?, she argues that Brett Kavanaugh's testimony underscores her belief, quote, that the left, even the moderate left, is feminized in this country to a degree that I have come to believe actually restricts its avenues for acceptable self-expression. So what does she mean by that? 
She means that Democrats are restrained and empathetic in the ways that they behave. See Christine Blasey Ford. Mm-hmm. And that Republicans are bombastic. See Kavanaugh and Lindsey Graham. Ugh. That this sort of inhospitable environment does not bode well for Democrats and that, in a sense, they're rendered ineffectual. Yeah. And I was telling you before we started that as far back as middle school, I had that in my head that the Republican conservative party was masculine and aggressive and that the Democratic party, for me, was more feminine and associated more with women. So I I completely think that Zimmerman is onto something here. Yeah, she goes on to write, our weird cultural commitment to the gender binary goes way beyond actual living men and women. I love that. <laughs> actual living men and women. If it didn't, people wouldn't freak out so badly when someone declines to choose. Masculinity and femininity are concepts we layer on top of everything from people to pens to political parties. Take any opposed things, Democrats, Republicans, cats and dogs, even the sun and moon, and you'll find one of them associated with physical strength, action and domineering behavior, and the other associated with emotion, reticence, and calm. That's not just descriptive, it's prescriptive and prescriptive too. If we could judge the moon for yelling, we would. We would. Good night, moon. (laughs) And she says, and I'm so glad that she pointed out in this article, she said, it's worth noting that many of the lawmakers who have recently been most courageous in standing up against unacceptable miscarriages of power have been not only women, but women of color, despite the fact that they have to contend with multiple layers of cultural disapproval for doing so. Yes, um... Completely agree. When I was thinking of examples off the top of my head, most of them are women of color. Yeah, and and I think that this, <laughs> the extension of this binary mm-hmm. to politics, to this uh, maybe even hampering of our the way that our government is currently running, uh, it shows that it really does hurt everyone. And that really is what this thread is of motherhood to just sort of like being a human living on planet Earth in the United States right now. Um, you know, it's these boxes that we're being asked to enter into, sun or moon. Well, we actually need both, right? We do need both. And the solution, according to Zimmerman, quote, the path forward for a feminized group has already been laid out by the third wave. Learn to be a bitch. Be angry, even if you aren't allowed. Be ruder than you think you can be without losing your principles. If they say feelings don't matter, turn your feelings into a weapon. Never shut up. Never stand down. And I agree. I agree. I feel like, you know, tap into your inner Kali Ma, right? Like, embrace this role of creator and destroyer. I mean, I don't necessarily need to wear a string of skulls around my neck, but if I need to, to get the great, message across. That would be a great fashion choice. <laughs> you did tell me, I don't know if you were joking, that you wore this black turtleneck in honor. She's wearing a black turtleneck, by the way, listeners, in honor of uh, Jason's mom from Friday the 13th. I am because I feel like I need to inhabit uh, her spirit. I'll allow her to to live in the light of complexity mm-hmm. uh, that she is both mother and destroyer. And I feel like we don't know her full story. And I would really love it if you could write that for her, from her perspective. <laughs> yeah. You know, I I I might I might dabble. 
My devil. All right. All right. Let's hear it. (laughs) November's coming up. It's true. I'm debating on whether or not to do it. What's the name of the the, uh, writing? NaNoWriMo. NaNoWriMo? Yeah. Can you explain that for people who don't know what that is? (laughs) It's National Novel Writing Month. There we go. Yes. And it is coming up. It is a charity for literacy. It's that's his goal is promote uh, literacy and reading and writing. And I will say it's coming up. If you've ever thought about doing it and you you haven't, I highly recommend it because the number one thing it taught me is to just write, just write it. It could be stupid. Come back and edit it later. Don't get caught up in thinking in your head. I don't really. I don't like this. It's not good. Just write it. That's right. <laughs> and now you have inspiration, Kali Ma. Kali Ma, she's a great inspiration. Thank you so much for joining us today, Julie. Uh, should we bo- blow out the candle? Yeah, are you ready? I think I'm ready. Thank you, Kali Ma, Thank you. for joining us today. Not setting everything on fire. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Phew. Did not get in trouble with the building manager nope. yet. Yeah. Um, yes, thanks. thanks so much for joining us, please. Well, I'd love to have you back anytime. Oh, yeah. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for indulging me. I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, and uh, we would love to hear from you listeners as well. We're, we have issued a call for anything that, any fiction, fan fiction, nonfiction, poetry, anything that you would like to share with us that you don't mind us sharing on the podcast. We would love to get it. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on social media. On Twitter, we are at MomStuffPodcast, and on Instagram, we are Stuff Mom Never Told You. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks as always to our producer, Andrew Howard. <laughs>